Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This is our final episode of the year and we're going to be talking about the UK's desired tilt to the Indo-Pacific. That was set out by the Integrated Review in October last year, although that's now being reviewed. But still, despite the change of governments, the change in the world, much of that will remain. We think that aspiration of being a bigger player in the region will be there too. And we've seen various signs in the last 18 months. We've seen the high-profile deployment of a Royal Navy carrier strike group. We've seen the emergence of the AUKUS alliance. We've seen the notion of the UK joining the CPTPP, the Pan-Pacific Trade Deal. So how realistic is it for the UK to have a substantial presence, defence or commercial, in the UN Indo-Pacific? We'll also be talking about Europe's own tilt towards the region, what France, Germany, the Netherlands, the European Union are looking to do there. How does that align with the United States' own ambitions in terms of China? So joining me to discuss this, I've got Shashank Joshi, the defence editor at The Economist. Welcome. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. And also Viola Nowens, a senior research fellow at RUSI and co-author of a recent Chatham House report on transatlantic cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. Welcome, Viola. Thank you, Bronwyn. Nice to be here. Very, very good to have you both. Well, let's let's start with this. The UK in the Indo-Pacific. Shashank, why is the UK trying to make this tilt? Well, I would say the UK considers itself slightly behind the curve on the tilt. You know, it looks at France, for example, which has had uh, engagement with the Indo-Pacific and an Indo-Pacific strategy for a little bit longer. And it says, actually, we're catching up on some of this. And there's fundamentally two reasons, which I think are both quite obvious to most of your listeners. One of them is the rise of China. And if you look at the integrated review, it describes China as the biggest economic threat to the UK's interests. It talks about China as a systemic challenger to the world order. And that language has hardened since the integrated review was published. So in part, the Indo-Pacific tilt is about addressing that challenge. But it's also a more positive vision. It's also a recognition that the Indo-Pacific region is becoming the world's centre of economic gravity. This is a region with some of the world's fastest growing economic powers, very ambitious, increasingly important middle powers, potentially superpowers countries like uh, India and um, Indonesia and many others. Part of this, including in defence, is what the UK has called its prosperity agenda, which is partly about trade deals, investment partnerships, saying if we want to have a good relationship with this very fast growing part of the world, access to markets, access to investment, then we simply have to be bigger players in that region. Violet, let's just stick on this point for a moment. This seems to me to go the way Shashank has described it, go to the heart of the ambivalence that the UK has had about China in particular. On the one hand, very much wanting the commercial ties, all the more you might say if it's um, turned a bit away from Europe. But on on the other hand, talking up what it might do on defence and so on. How, How do you see the UK's ambitions? I mean, I think the the UK's ambitions, as Shashank has outlined, has, has been very much on, as you say, balancing that defense and prosperity agenda. But when it comes to China, you know, it, it is a difficult uh, a difficult balance to strike for everybody in in their approach, specifically to the world's second largest economy, potentially at some point to be the world's first largest economy, and yet also address those security concerns around a rising China, which has been behaving in in slightly problematic ways, certainly in its own region and its own country. Um, And then, of course, um, you know, in bilateral ties uh, as well. 
Um, but then, you know, when it comes to then how you engage in the rest of the, the Indo-Pacific region, I think it's important to, one, understand the, the concerns that you have with regards to China, but then not necessarily only frame your engagement in the Indo-Pacific along the lines of China. And so in that sense, you see the UK really branching out on, on a various number of um, bilateral relationships, multilateral relationships, minilaterals. Which ones are you thinking of in particular? That's a really interesting point, that we must not talk just about China, that this is something the UK can do in developing alliances. Precisely. There. So you have, of course, existing close ties with countries, for example, like Japan uh, and Australia and the United States, of course. We can't forget the US as a, an Indo-Pacific country itself. But then you also have countries for which the UK has long-standing ties, like those in the FPDA, Singapore, for example. I think it's really interesting to also listen to the recent speech by um, Foreign Secretary Cleverly around needing to also strike out and engage with non-traditional partners, particularly in you know those hedging countries, the non-aligned countries who don't really want to be caught in a geopolitical tussle. So those are kind of you know countries like Malaysia, maybe like India as well, for example. But in addition to that, I would say you know minilateralism is something that we see is a growing trend and a way for countries like the UK and other interested partners, whether they be traditional partners or not, to really get the ball rolling on specific interests that they both share where they feel like current movement in policy is not sufficient. Minilateralism, that's a marvellous concept. Can you just take us into it for a second? Sure. Minilateralism effectively means a small grouping of countries that come together on a specific policy issue. You can think in defence terms, for example, AUKUS, which has three members, the United States, the UK and Australia, participating in defence industry agreements. But then you've also got others, for example, uh, the Mineral Security Partnership, which brings together countries, um, interested countries in Asia, as well as in Europe, including the UK and the United States and Japan, to come together and think about raw material, critical material supply chains. So these small groups, yes. the, the phrase coalitions of the willing, I think, died a death in the Iraq war. But it's, it's the same idea of people with, with uh, countries with common interests. Shashank, this is quite an optimistic for Britain picture that Vela is portraying with a lot of opportunities there, a lot of alliances. Do you think really that Britain can have a substantial presence in the region? It all depends on what we mean by substantial. I think from my perspective, there's been a tendency to overemphasize the big showy defense assets and of course the aircraft carrier is the most showy of them all and then to point to the others that are more persistent for example the deployment of two river class offshore patrol vessels relatively small warships which are going to be which which are i believe permanently deployed to the indo-pacific region and to say well these won't make any difference at all in a major war but i think the point first of all is we don't judge the UK's presence only by the criteria of what difference would this make in a war over Taiwan. We judge it in terms of what day-to-day difference does it make in sustaining British defence diplomacy and showing British diplomats and showing British faces up in those exactly those middle ground countries that Vela was referring to. And then I think we also underplay all the non-hardware stuff. So, for example, Britain is a global and world-class cyber power, which, and cyber power is, is a geographically unconstrained domain in many ways. It has a lot to do in terms of addressing Chinese cyber power and countering it with its Five Eyes partnerships, including with 
Australia and New Zealand. If you look at defence industry, we've already talked about AUKUS, which is an Indo-Pacific defence technological pact. I could also point to the recently signed deal on a future combat air system, the next generation of fighter jet. And that includes not just Italy, but also Japan. So in other words, the UK is playing a very key role in partnering with a, a vital Indo-Pacific partner in building what's going to be a futuristic combat air platform or a next generation fighter jet. So I guess my plea here, Bronwyn, is don't just look at the big ships, look at sort of all the other instruments of power that will give Britain a sustained bit of sway or clout in Asia. All right, so let's look at those, because again, uh, what you're saying is something that I think a Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, would, would, would love to hear. And, and indeed, the Prime Minister, that this really sounds like a very formidable role that the UK might have, even just looking at the defence aspects. But others might say, and I've heard people in the Foreign Office uh, say this, look, uh, we've got Ukraine, we've got the Middle East, which uh, the US and the UK might try to tilt away from, but keeps pulling attention back. Is it really realistic for Britain to contribute very much in the way of defence to allies, including the US, in the region, given the demands closer to home? There are going to be trade-offs. And, you know, particularly now when we have a major war in Europe, I think it's clear that if a major conflict were to break out in Asia, one of the most important tasks for Europeans, including Britain, would be backfilling for US capabilities in Europe, perhaps in the Gulf region, perhaps even in the Indian Ocean. But we should think broadly about what a conflict in Asia may entail. For example, what role would Europeans, including the UK, play in refuelling US combat aircraft and warships that are headed east? What role would we play in shadowing PLA vessels in the Indian Ocean that may be very active? What role would we play in monitoring and perhaps potentially interrupting Chinese supply lines running east through the Indian Ocean. So our role may be modest. And in fact, you could argue that everyone's role, apart from the US and China, will be modest, other than maybe, you know, Japan and countries right in the thick of it. But cumulatively, the big advantage we have is that the US has lots of modest but cumulatively important allies, whereas the Chinese don't. Shashak, let me just go on to the economic question facing Britain, the choice, if you like, about how it deals with China. The US has made clear that it would like its allies to um, talk tougher towards China, uh, perhaps detach themselves a bit. China, we've heard, has been wants to decouple itself in some sense. But if you look at how Britain is economically interwoven with China, what can it do other than perhaps not uh, take Chinese investment in half-built nuclear power stations? Well, I think the, the trade-offs are partly about how much it balances security with prosperity. And we see those trade-offs not just in the question of half-built power stations, which is one. We saw it not very long ago, a couple of months ago, in the UK decision to forestall further Chinese investment in Newport Fab, a very important semiconductor fab in the UK. Uh, and that, again, was seen as a project that was once acceptable and important to saving UK jobs uh, you know, last month or last year. But then the balance changed. And we judged that actually the the risk of having a substantial Chinese presence in a vital cutting edge technological industry was too great. And it's an echo of the same decision we saw with Huawei a few years ago, where again, having Huawei in the UK 5G telecommunication system cut costs. It was a it was a provider of cheap and affordable kit, but the decision was eventually made that the risks this posed to communication security was too great. So again and again we're running into these problems in specific areas. And I think the worry in some quarters is that 
as we continue to harden the British line on the Chinese threat. And it is hardening. If you listen to all the speeches made in the past 18 months by the heads of the UK intelligence agencies, that this will ultimately cause China and Chinese state-owned enterprises and state-influenced enterprises to simply slow down or stop the flow of capital into the UK. But I think what's clear is the UK government feels that is increasingly a trade-off that has to be resolved in favour of security even if it has a substantial economic impact. I think that's a really important point, but I think what's also really important is to understand, you know, what decoupling actually means and what areas you need to decouple in and what areas it doesn't really matter if you still have deep trading relationships with China. So in that respect, I think the discussion that, you know, is currently going on between the United States and Europe, for example, on what really is a critical area that must be decoupled from China what that is, where dual use really lies, that I think is the real difficult question where I do think we are seeing some divergence between the United States and Europe and specific European countries. We've seen this this reiteration continuously that Europe is not interested in decoupling. But again, it's not about a full economic decoupling. It's about specific key areas. And there you see the United States, particularly with the export controls of October the 7th on semiconductors, supercomputing, really taking a step forward and being more forward leaning than Europe is seemingly prepared to be at the moment. And, you know, asking Europe to do the same effectively. Um, And we're seeing a bit of resistance there. So this, I think, is going to be an area where we're going to see more discussion, more debate, and certainly between you know my country, the Netherlands, and the United States, you've seen some pretty intense negotiations on that that seem to now have been resolved. But coming from um, the United States recently, you know the message was that this is just the beginning. So there will be more in this respect as well. Thank you. You put it very well. And if there's one point of agreement between Republicans and Democrats in in the U.S., it is um, the attitude towards China which is tougher than anything you hear in Britain or indeed, I think, in the Netherlands at the moment. Viola, I wonder if you could take us into our second topic on this, still staying in the region, but it's how, how other countries in Europe are positioning themselves. We've uh, France, Germany, the Netherlands and the European Union have all published Indo-Pacific strategy documents. Can you just describe for us what they're saying? They're effectively saying a lot of the same things, to be honest, Bronwyn. It's very much, you know, the same concerns around Chinese behavior. It's around the understanding of the economic pull of the Indo-Pacific and the the role and the opportunity for European business in that part of the world. And then also the opportunity to set, you know, forthcoming standards and norms around areas of new technology or business. And so in that respect, we see much of the same with the UK, uh, with the United States, key partners like Japan, where I think you see a slight divergence, though, is emphasis between them. With regards to Europe, there's a heavy emphasis on the economy. There's a heavy emphasis also on these more non-traditional security areas, climate change, for example, where Europe thinks it has a stronger role to play. And that's also in part because I think in defense terms, you know, we've noted, of course, that the UK has its own limitations in defense power projection in the region. But it is, I think we have to remember, together with France, probably the two most capable and resourced European countries that are able to go to the Indo-Pacific and be deployed there. For other European countries, and certainly for the European Union as well, that is not the case, and certainly not to that extent. So you're looking at engagement in other security areas. Infrastructure, for example, is one of those areas that spans both the economy and security in various ways. So those are areas where you see Europe really trying to engage. 
Shashank, I wonder if you can take us into the German perspective in particular. You and I were at the Königswinter discussion, which is a, a Anglo-German talking group, if you like, conference that meets, and people were pushing at this question of, of whether it gives Germany particularly difficult choices, given the length of the commercial contacts there. I mean, going back to the 80s in its latest incarnation, you could see an even older history than that, but even in the 80s, German uh, companies and, and politicians seeking to have ties with China. What kind of dilemma do you think it gives the German leadership? Well, the German economy has more exposure to the Chinese economic model. It, it has a bigger transition to make than, for example, the United Kingdom. And we saw this in the debate not long ago in, in November over the Chancellor Olaf Scholz's visit to Beijing. Many people thought he shouldn't have gone. This was immediately after the Chinese Communist Party's Congress with, with the consolidation of Xi Jinping's power and that sense of hardening despotism. Many people thought if he was going to go, he should take Emmanuel Macron, present a common European front uh, rather than be picked off one by one by the Chinese. But instead, he took a big business delegation. And, and Ronwin, as you and I heard, even many German officials or, or those close to the German security debate thought that was a pretty bad idea and it sent the wrong message even though the Germans in many other ways are still saying many of the same things that we're hearing in Paris and London, which is that China's an economic threat, its espionage is a problem, its cyber activity is a problem, its human rights record is a problem. But I think we see this 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 real sense in, in Germany particularly and in some other parts of Europe that they don't want to be sucked into the US view of the US-China rivalry as systemic and irreconcilable and intense. And I think that was summed up by Jens Plotner, who was a, an advisor, the foreign policy advisor to Olaf Scholz back in June, when he said publicly, I believe our goal must be to reduce systemic rivalry with China as far as possible. And he cited things like climate change. Now, if you have that conversation in Washington, you won't hear the view that you need to reduce systemic rivalry. You'll hear the view that you need to prosecute it and wage it as effectively as possible. And I think that cultural policy difference is still a really serious one between Germany in particular and the US. And Viola, looking at uh, Ukraine, which has also given Germany one of those dilemmas, but uh, it's a big call on European time, attention, money at the moment. Do you think Europe, individual countries and, and uh, collectively can can face both directions, can try and have these ties in the Indo-Pacific region, but also deal with these problems very close to home? Again, I think that depends on how you define those ties and what goals and expectations you set. Certainly, you know, the ties are already existing and they've been existing for a long time with specific countries in the region, but then also institutions. So those will remain. I suppose we're talking about more in defense terms in a way. And in that respect, you know, we have seen discussions on European strategic autonomy for a long time and now coming back to a head. It is, I think, a question of how much Europe wants to invest in its own security and, and how it manages that, because should there be, I think, a conflict in the Indo-Pacific, particularly involving Taiwan and, and China, in that respect, the United States will be fully concentrated on its own theater, its priority theater. I think you see already grumblings in, in D.C., you know, of, of disbelief that this can't really continue much longer, that Europe must take a, a leadership role of its own security in its own region, because, quite frankly, the United States has bigger fish to fry and, and bigger potential security challenges to contend with in its own region. In that respect, 
there's going to be a trade-off. There's going to have to be a balance. But, you know, as I think Shashank put very well, there there are creative ways in which Europe and the United States and partner countries in the Indo-Pacific can work together to manage those various contending challenges and, and pressures on their resources, particularly in times of conflict, but especially in times of peace. And that's where I think the preparation work at the moment also is starting. And you see the United States have those conversations, you know, very private conversations around, say, contingencies for Taiwan, what that might look like, what how one prepares, how one responds as well. Ultimately, though, I think for Europe, it's been really interesting that, you know, once the, the war in Ukraine kicked off, there was a debate for a moment that uh, Europe would no longer be interested in the Indo-Pacific. Actually, the war in Ukraine, how China has reacted, the limitless partnership, you know, announced by Russia and China right before, that has, I think, underscored the interlinkages between Europe and European security and Asia and Chinese actions. So those two are no longer, I think, separable in the minds of policymakers, even if a balance must be struck. Shashank, just saying finally on this point about Ukraine, can Europe look beyond Ukraine? I think that it's currently enmeshed in a very critical period of the war. But what has impressed me looking at Britain's debate, if I if I know, speak of the one I know best, is that in a year in which we're facing the biggest war in, in a generation, perhaps since 1945, that if you look at the speeches made by British officials, the integrated review refresh or update, and the speeches made by all the heads of the spy agencies, it's not Russia they are focused on, it's China. And I think that says something about their strategic horizons. And when I ask them, what is China learning from this? They don't necessarily say an invasion of Taiwan is imminent or this makes China more likely to lash out, but they all say China is learning from our response to Ukraine. It's learning about how you prosecute a big war, about how you decapitate a regime, about how you endure the effect of sanctions and sanctions proof your own economy. So everyone understands that while the fate of Europe hangs in the balance, the fate of Ukraine is, is hangs in the balance over this very difficult winter, the Chinese are watching like hawks. They are learning lessons and they're going to pose us long-term problems that may well exceed in magnitude and severity over a 10, 15 year period, those posed by Russians. And I think that the European system really recognizes that. Shashank, thank you for that. And both of these questions that we've really been talking about, China and how the world responds, uh, including in the region, and Ukraine and what that has meant for Europe and also the the order of the world, uh, are very much things that Chatham House is going to be looking at next year, as you will hear in my director's lecture on January 10th. Well, with that, I've got to bring this to a close and this series of podcasts before we break for the end of the year. So a big thank you to my guests, Shashank Joshi and Viola Nowers. You can follow them both on Twitter. You can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media channels. Do like and follow us. Please do leave us a review. We'd love to know, whatever it is. And to read more from our experts around the world, to find out more about our events, and there are many of those, or to become a member. Still time for Christmas presents. Don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow all our work. And for now, on behalf of all our members, staff, colleagues and guests, wishing you a very merry end of the year and a happy new year. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. See you in 2023.